Welcome to Meet the Investigators, a podcast from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. I'm your new host, Brenda Medina, and I'm a reporter at ICIJ. This month, we're bringing you a special episode from a recent event for ICIJ Insiders. A live panel I moderated about our newest investigation, Deforestation Inc. The investigation found that due to light regulations, environmental certifications often overlook forest destruction and human rights violations. This live panel, which was exclusive to ICIJ donors, dives into what we found with three key reporters. Let's get into it. Good morning or good evening, everyone, depending on where you're joining us from. So I'm Brenda uh, from ICIJ, and I'm really very excited to host this recording of ICIJ's podcast, Meet the Investigators. This is going to be available later as a podcast. So we're going to talk about today our latest investigation at ICIJ. During climate talks in 2021, war leaders pledged to stop forest loss and degradation by 2030. So during a nine-month investi- uh, period, ICIJ with 140 journalists from 27 countries delved into why and how nations are falling short of meeting that goal. Today, we're gonna talk to three of the journalists who worked on this investigation, which we call Deforestation Inc. And I'm gonna begin by introducing our amazing panelists. First, we have Sheila Aleshi, who's an investigative journalist and video uh, journalist from ICIJ. And she's also the coordinator for our partners in Asia and Europe. Sheila is really the mastermind behind Deforestation Inc. She conceived this investigation and also coordinated the project with 140 journalists while uh, reporting her own stories. Hi, Sheila. Hello. Uh, next, we have Benedict Franz. Uh, he's an investigative reporter, reporter in Germany's public broadcaster NDR, where he also coordinates cross-border investigations and also hosts a podcast about organized crime. Hi, Benedict. Hi, everyone. And we also have Krishna Pradipta, who is a multimedia journalist and digital media producer at Tempo Magazine in Indonesia. Krishna leads Tempo's interactive and data visualizations desk. Hiya. Thank you all for joining us today and for telling us a little bit about your investigative work. And we're going to start with Sheila. Uh, Sheila, can you tell us what Deforestation Inc. is about and how you came up with the idea to investigate this topic? So um, um, the investigation is, as the name tells us, is about uh, deforestation, but more specifically about the enablers of deforestation. Um, if you guys are familiar with ICIJ's work, you know that we are a bit of a obsessed with looking at systems that are broken rather than just isolated cases. So in this case, we wanted to look at all those um, industries and operators who um, basically allow companies to keep um, um, destroying forests or harming the environment uh, while being certified as sustainable. And it started more than a year ago, as I was uh, working on another investigation, uh, the Pandora Papers, also an ICIJ investigation. And I found some documents about KPMG, one of the biggest uh, accounting firms, showing how the firm was working for 
some South Asian companies accused of deforestation and other abuses. So I thought it was a very interesting um, uh, thing that I'd never seen before. And as I started to look into this, I found this $10 billion industry um, of environmental auditing firms that uh, basically work for companies in the forestry industry or that produce forest products and help them certify their products or operations as green so that these companies can sell their products to consumers that are environmentally savvy and to investors that are so interested in this um, new green movement. Sheila, and why do you think it's important that we all know this information? Yeah, so um, when I looked at this, um, you know, when I started my research, I realized how this was really a global problem. Um, and that's when I decided to invite all the partners. Initially, we were just a small group of journalists, uh, but then it grew so much and it became uh, a, for, like, a very big uh, team of 140 reporters in um, in more than two dozen countries. and. Um, um, so the global crisis obviously affects all of us, and certainly deforestation is one of the leading causes uh, of this. So it was important for all this cross-border team of journalists to look at this problem and also to let the public, the bigger public, obviously, um, the international public know about a system that is really not working. As you said at the beginning, you know, there were so many promises by politicians a couple of years ago. Um, so we really, as journalists, wanted to uh, hold these promises to account, understand what uh, was being done and what was not working. Thank you, Sheila. Uh, Benedict, the next question is for you, and I'm, I want to give some context. So in Germany, the German team reported on a very controversial forestry product that is supposed to be strongly regulated in Europe, and we're talking about teak wood from Myanmar. Uh, following a political scandal involving this wood in 2018, the German Agriculture and Food Agency promised more controls on teak that enters the country, right? So you and the team looked into whether the government had fulfilled those promises. Can you tell us a little bit about the 2018 scandal and also what your findings show today? Sure, Brenna. Um, I have to go back a bit for the answer. You just stop me if I go too much into the nitty gritty details, okay? So um, the scandal you were referring to um, is about the German Navy ship. It's a sail training ship, um, Gorsch Fock. And Gorsch Fock is a very long, wooden ship all in white with white sails and every German naval officer has to do at least a bit of his training on this ship and since the ship travels all over the world it is also called uh, the German ambassador in white and yeah all I want to say is the um, average German is very proud of Gorsch Fock. So however in 2018 it turned out that the Gorsch Fock um, has a big problem because during the renovation of the ship's deck, uh, large quantities, uh, a couple of tons of teak from Myanmar were used. And um, just for those who are not familiar with Myanmar teak, Myanmar teak is a very expensive wood um, that is especially used in the high-end luxury yacht sector, uh, simply because yeah, it has good features, 
one of them is it is very resistant against the sun another it is also resistant against uh, salt water and moreover it looks uh, yeah very beautiful the problem is that already at this point in time in 2018 um, this teak should not have been consumed in europe because there were already two serious problems with myanmar teak it's also called the king of teaks uh, the first problem is that Myanmar is one of the most deforested countries in Asia, also worldwide, and experts believe that um, very soon there will be no naturally grown teak trees left in Myanmar, just because yeah they are basically sacrificed for the global yacht industry. Um, and there is also another problem with this teak, which also existed in 2018, um, organized criminals are often involved in this trade with Myanmar teak, and some of them are mafia-style groups, and moreover, corruption is very commonplace in Myanmar. Especially the second point <clears throat> poses a huge problem for European teak traders, because um, uh, according to the European Timber uh, Trade Directive, um, the uh, law that regulates the timber trade, every timber trader must be able to document the legal origin of uh, the timber he trades, and that is simply not possible. So um, all I want to say, when uh, it became known in 2018 that, yeah, literally tons of Myanmar teak had been used on our beautiful German military ship, um, there was great public outrage, at least here in Germany, but not only in Germany. And yeah, the responsible control authority, the German Agriculture and Food Agency, BLE, declared publicly that in future it would be no longer possible to import teak from Myanmar in accordance with the law. And moreover, they declared that um, they would take very tough actions against uh, traders who would still uh, trade teak from Myanmar. That was in 2018. And um, since then, uh, at the latest, it was impossible to import teak in accordance uh, with the law. And that was not only a German position, but a European position, because all the competent authorities agreed and shared this position. In 2021, however, the legal situation even became worse, because in early 2021, as you all know, the military in Myanmar staged a coup, imprisoned, tortured, and even murdered opposition leaders. And since then, um, the new military junta is fighting yeah, a war against its own people. And um, because of this military coup, the EU imposed sanctions against Myanmar in the summer of 2021. And um, they also posed sanctions against one specific company, the Myanmar Timber Enterprise, which is the timber monopolist in Myanmar. And um, they did so because um, nearly 100% of the timber trade, which is going out from Myanmar, is traded via this company, MTE, Myanmar Timber Enterprise. And the idea behind this is that um, the earnings from the teak trade and the timber trade um, are directly flowing into the accounts of the military junta and yeah, are used uh, for the war against its own population and uh, 
and the suppression of democratic forces there. So Brenda, you asked me what we find, found out in, in our investigation. Just a small recap. Since 2018, uh, the tea trade in the EU is actually banned and even more since 2021, if that's possible. <clears throat> and moreover, uh, German authorities told us they would fight this trade. And together with ICHJ and many, many partners, we were able now to um, find out that the, the reality is clearly different. Um, in the project, we were able to receive confidential investigation documents and process and evaluate various trade statistics. And we've spoken to many European authorities. And what we see is that since 2018, many thousand tons of teak have continued to enter the EU. And often this trade goes through countries that have less control, like Italy, Greece, um, Croatia, and in more recent years, uh, Poland. And even the authorities who promised that they would control hard look now the other way. So we see, for example, that even several hundred tons of tea continue to be imported into the Germany between 2018 and 2020 without the competent authority having the wood confiscated. What astonished me really in this investigation is that we also see that even after the EU imposed sanctions um, uh, against MTE, the teak um, and the wood imports continued into the EU, we uh, were able to see that more than 3,000 tons of um, Myanmar wood um, still entered the EU after in 2021. And by the way, a couple of tons uh, of, of that teak uh, or that wood were also um, traded via Germany. <laughs> but yeah, to point out um, uh, the fact that perhaps shocked me the most in this investigation is that we see that nearly all competent or nearly all responsible authorities, um, the competent authorities, customs, the EU Commission, and also the industry associations know that these imports are going on. And I have the feeling that nobody's doing anything about it. So yeah, that's basically our findings. Thank you so much, Benedict. Uh, and you mentioned that you got this document, you know, uh, to help you with the investigation. Can you talk just a little bit more about how you figure out that in the reporting that these companies are, you know, bypassing regulation? You talked about the third countries that, the you know, the wood enters from. I mean, there are basically different ways how timber or teak from Myanmar is still reaching Europe. On the one hand, you can see um, that the origin of the teak is um, pretty often concealed and this teak is then simply redeclared, uh, for example, as teak from, uh, from, from India. Uh, that is one way, um, but there's also much easier way, you already mentioned it, because as a couple of authorities of certain uh, EU member states just do not pay too much attention to what is coming in to the EU, um, Teak traders are still going on to import their teak via countries like Poland, Italy, or Greece. And actually, there is a loophole in the UTR, <clears throat> um, and it is that once the teak arrives the European market, then it can be traded freely without anyone committing a crime, if that makes sense. 
And if you ask me, how is that possible? Then I, I would have to say, frankly, that the UTR and also the sanctions delivery um, provide these loopholes. So um, it seems to be not a bug, but a feature. And yeah, I, I have the feeling these loopholes are there that authority can say, we are doing something about T-Trade, but on the other hand, you can still support your high-end yacht industry. So that's that's a bit the feeling I, uh, I have. Thank you, Benedict. Um, Chris, now I have a question for you. I want to talk about what your team found in Indonesia, which is one of the world's largest exporters of tropical wood. So the government there, uh, established a verification system that is supposed to ensure the legality and sustainability of certain products, and that includes timber. This was done in part to comply with the European regulations that Benedict is, is talking about. And according to the reporting at Temple Magazine, how is that verification system working or not working? Yeah, so uh, I think like uh, what Benedict just said, on paper, right? these systems, they they look good, right? It's a good system on paper. So just um, a quick primer about the system itself. Um, essentially any corporation that wants to export um, forest resources um, to overseas from Indonesia, um, that product, be it timber, be it wood furniture, will need a verified legal certification, right? This certification involves a multi-stakeholder process that involves the government, uh, timber companies, um, any production companies. So it can be um, logging companies, it can be furniture makers, um, third-party watchdogs, and certification bodies. So all of them are working together in order to ensure the product that we're selling to Europe, to America, to Japan, um, doesn't contribute to deforestation. So that sounds really good, right? But the problem here, and I think it's um, similar to what Benedict was saying, is that there, like, loop, there are loopholes everywhere, right? If we break down the verification process from production, so from logging to production, um, to putting the, the timber to um, factories where they, were, they would be made into other products to exports, we found several critical points that are being taken advantage of by various corporations um, to, you know, I think, increase their um, bottom line, right? These range from falsification of documents. So they would fake the illegal documents. They would say that they're certified, but they're not. Um, to illegal wood mixing. So they would buy um, illegal wood from uncertified uh, companies, mix them up in with their wood stock in their factories, and then ship them off to Europe, to Japan, wherever, to even price fixing. So we there, there's even a case where um, a certain type of wood was mislabeled as a cheaper alternative, so they don't have to pay uh, more taxes for that type of wood. So, and additionally, while enforcement does happen and, you know, um, governments do crack, the Ministry of Forestry crack down, cracks down on uh, corporations that does, um, that does destroy the environment. There's one that just get, got their entire business license removed and they just disappeared. It's inconsistent. So reports by Watchdog, 
on corporations doing these violations to certification bodies aren't always acted upon. We also found systemic loopholes. So um, these loopholes range from how corporations can just recertify. So um, there are some cases where a corporation is proven to have committed um, environmental violations, social violations, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'd have their certifications removed either by the certification body or the government. And then a couple months later, they would recertify with a different body. And it doesn't even take a couple of months. In some cases, they would just do it immediately. Um, there are also cases where they would work around the SVRK system. So interestingly, this verification system is only applicable for exports. So this doesn't happen domestically. So the workaround is that they would sell wood domestically to people who are certified and then get them to buy their illegal wood and then that would be exported out. So it's really a shame because um, this kind of resource tracking program doesn't happen in Indonesia, right? So, and it has, uh, ever since it was um, made into law by the government, it has definitely um, taken down the number of illegal logging that happens in Indonesia. But these loopholes kind of uh, weaken the entire system illegally and kind of like takes away the trust in certifications. Um, the EU, it'd be interesting to, the EU, the EU connection is really interesting in Indonesia because this entire system was built, as you said, um, because of regulation in the EU, right? Uh, more recently, we have expanded on SVLK because the EU demanded that we do so. Um, uh, one of these expansions being in the new EU DDR regulations is that they need to be able to track the wood, right? So we've be begun incorporating geolocators to our timber. So what I'm really interested in finding out is that it comes back to Benedict's point is, um, so in Indonesia, we do whatever the EU says, right? I uh, I don't know if this will happen, but I feel like if the EU cracks down on green um, greenwashing, as it were, um, I think the Indonesian government would definitely, uh, I, I wonder that would that pressure the Indonesian government just enough to begin cracking down on these loopholes. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. And uh, you keep talking about these certification entities or certification bodies. And one of the things that Temple found, uh, Temple Magazine found, is that a number uh, of violations by forestry companies were missed or ignored or overlooked, right, by certification bodies. So can you talk about, uh, you talked a little bit about the roles of the certification entities, but can you talk about the violations that they, that they overlooked? Sure. So just winding back to the whole system, um, certification bodies are one of the key stakeholders in the SVLK certification system. Um, they basically ensure that corporations are following guidelines set up by the government before they are certified, right? Um, so they get the certification, the power to certify um, these products as legal lies with the certification bodies. Um, they are given this power by the Ministry of Forestry and also the National Accreditation um, Committee. 
So they do this through audits, right? That involve looking at four um, specific aspects. Uh, preconditions, which is basically paperwork. Do you have the correct permits? Do you have um, the correct licenses to operate as a business entity trading on timber? Um, production, so they um, proving that their product is acquired legally. So this is where they check out, usually check out where the concessions are, um, what the timber production is like, what the sawmills are like. Um, are they within permit bounds, et cetera, et cetera. Ecology, proving that the company has done right by the environment. So they're checking out the production, um, the production systems kind of like waste management and whether or not they have sustainably extracted the resource. And sociology. So it's basically whether or not the, co the corporation has taken care of the local people that are living in the area, right? Um, special audits are also undertaken when the watchdog rises a complaint. So they can, they, um, they give out certifications that are like four or five years, and then they can uh, do a surprise audit in the middle of those, and then they can re-audit you when you recertify. So that's how the certification bodies work in the system. So we found over a hundred cases of violations to the guidelines that these auditors had missed, right? These include, so these include all of the, all of the preconditions that I told you guys about before. Um, environmental violations are kind of like illegal logging, incompetent waste management, right? Social violations include co conflicts with the indigenous communities um, and even criminal violations. These are where we put in, um, you know, document falsifications, sometimes even kind of um, violence toward the indigenous peoples. So one of the cases we picked up involves an Asia pulp and paper um, supplier, um, Balai Kaya Mandiri, BKM, which had had multiple disputes with the indigenous community in their concession regarding um, where they're at. So their concession is kind of like, uh, inside the concession, there is a um, indigenous kind of farming area where they put in palm uh, palm fruit, where they produce palm fruit. Um, the, these kinds of things happen. And these kinds of things are also protected within the SVLK system under the sociology aspect, right? Um, under this aspect, the company has to uh, protect them, you know, either give them employment, communicate with um, their borders within each other, and kind of help each other out, right? Um, so this is not happening. Um, the corporation is allegedly cleared out the local palm oil, uh, palm fruit, sorry, palm fruit plantation, despite discussions regarding the borders of the palm fruit plantation and the concessions not being finished yet. So they're still kind of discussing about what to do with it, but they're clearing it out constantly, right? So conflicts happened three times. On the first one in 2018, happened again in 2020, happened again two years later, 2022, right? Um, the newest conflict is kind of like a bit more diabolical because the company allegedly came at night and cleared out the area and then planted their own acacia uh, plants in the places, in the plantation, in the villagers' plantation. Um, one farmer even got a stroke after he saw what had happened to his um, uh, to his plantation because these are people's livelihoods, right? Instantly, um, it's just gone. They're um, uh, the the place where they can generate money to pay off, you know, their children and food and stuff like that. 
So I mentioned before this conflict itself is clearly a violation of the SVLK guidelines, which protects indigenous people. Um, yet the interest, the, the very surprising thing is that certification for this company still stands, right? Um, the, there's, there was a special audit that was undertaken for BKF by their certification, certification company. Um, I'll, wait, I forgot, what's the name? Yeah, that's like a certification, uh, a smaller local certification company. Um, and they said that, uh, so that means the system works, right? The watchdog reported the, what do you call it? The violation, the social violation. But then they found, uh, like, let me read out what they found. They said that um, the complaint uh, did not have significant burden, uh, did not reach the standard of proof that they needed to take out the certification. So this is the big weakness of certification companies here. They have different interpretation of the guidelines, right? Um, so sometimes what is found by the watchdogs aren't necessarily also, um, doesn't necessarily reach the standard of proof needed to take out the certification by the certification companies. So this is all inconsistent with each other. One company might be super stringent, and that kind of sometimes happened with the international ones. Um, but local companies, local certification companies, aren't that um, uh, that stringent with the rules. And sometimes they work together with the the companies to kind of um, see whether or not they can uh, fix it before they have to take the certification away. So yeah, that's the. That's the whole. Thank you so uh, much, Krishna. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was trying to read your stories in, in English yeah. translation. I was very <laughs> moved by uh, your findings on like the violations, especially in the land conflict and displacement. Uh, Sheila, remaining on the topic of certifications and these certification bodies, there is uh, this word, this concept that comes up, you know, in many of the of the stories from certification, uh, from Deforestation Inc. <laughs> and uh, there is greenwashing. Uh, can you explain to us what this means in the context of this investigation? Yeah, so just to um, to connect this to what Chris has found, um, our data team has um, reviewed um, hundreds, or more than 2,000 um, environmental violations and also accusations of wrongdoing by company in the forest product industry. And we have found that in the last 20 years or so, um, more than 340 of these companies were accused of wrongdoing while they were certified as green. So um, our um, goal in this exercise was to show how um, these certifications that are basically green labels that you can see on a lot of these products are not sometimes, uh, they not do not correspond to truth. And uh, for the longest times, governments have closed their eyes to this problem. Uh, now some uh, agencies, some consumer protection agencies around the world, like in Australia and the UK, and also now also in the, in the European Union, um, 
they are uh, starting to look at uh, green claims or by companies or basically to see whether um, you know their their statements the are true or not um, if you I, I was just uh, trying to find an example and just looking around me I have this candy package where you can see there is a label here that says that this uh, package is made with paper that is um, certified as um, uh, coming from a sustainable source and now every now it would be good to you know know whether this is true or not because um, as Krishna has shown and also has our many of our partners have demonstrated in their reporting, um, in a lot of these cases, auditors um, uh, audit companies, but they may not see problems with their forestry operations, or they do not investigate enough, because a lot of these auditors just look at a, a small part of the supply chain, instead of looking at the whole chain from the beginning to the end. Um, and a lot of things can go wrong. Um, Defenders of the certification system have said that this has brought uh, a lot of improvement in countries with very weak forest governments, uh, governance, um, including in Brazil, etc. But um, this should not be enough, right? Because it's a totally voluntary and self-regulated system, and um, which is exactly what we wanted to point out in our investigation to show how. Um, maybe there should be more regulation to really uh, help consumers understand when uh, a claim, a green claim is um, correspond to the truth or not. Um, and, uh, you know, we always, um, we make a comparison with the more traditionally, a traditional uh, auditing and accounting uh, system where you have a company auditing the financials of a, uh, of a big corporation Obviously, there are there is a lot of wrongdoing, and ICAJ knows it well. But there are also bodies and checks and balances in place where the auditors itself can be monitored in some cases. While for the environmental industry, you don't have that, um, and it can the ultimate consequence is that a lot of uh, you know uh, bad uh, environmental practices can continue, and so the idea of using that as a solution for global climate change clearly wouldn't work. Thank you, Sheila. And I have another question for Benedict. Uh, you also published a story about illegal logging in Romania, which is home to some of Europe's most vital forests. And one of the sources in your story is a person who claims to have been part of the so-called timber mafia in Romania. Can you tell us? what this timber mafia is and how it allegedly operates? Sure, my pleasure. I mean, I mean the term timber mafia or wood mafia sounds a bit funny um, because at first you don't think that wood and mafia are two things that necessarily belong together, right? But in fact, the, the trade in illegal timber is the third largest uh, source of income for organized crime groups worldwide. It comes right after drug trafficking and the trafficking of counterfeit products. And I, I was um, astonished to learn that Interpol um, estimates 
<clears throat> that the illegal timber trade now generates about 50 million uh, 50 billion euros per year so it's really a huge thing and however if if we, if we look at uh, europe um you might say that romania is the country that is most affected by illegal logging and experts estimate that there every second tree is illegally locked and the the problem in romania is that uh, romania is the country where europe's last virgin forests uh, forests are located so so the activity of the timber mafia there um is really quite dangerous uh, yeah in terms of sustainability it really affects affects all of us and <clears throat> according to to um our research we we talked to um uh, former members of the um, timber mafia in Romania, and we talked to uh, foresters and to politicians there, and we we did some investigations on the ground. And according according to do this research, I would describe the timber mafia system probably like this: at the center of the system, there are companies that cut timber illegally. And they pay bribes to officials of the state forestry agency Rum Silver, and this timber is um, allegedly also sold in large quantities to Western companies, and many, really many actors um, profit from the illegal proceeds uh, of of this business, including high-ranking police officers, judges, politicians, uh, political parties and even government politicians, at least in the past. Uh, so the Timmer Mafia thus, uh, thus is a kind of pyramid scheme um, that has yeah, created numerous actors with vested interests in this system. And I would say that is the, the main problem why this system is so hard to find, because it's not new. I mean, it's um, the, the problem is known since a couple of years. And another, at least for me, important point is um, that the first tool of choice uh, of the timber mafia is obviously corruption, right? But where corruption fails, um, the timber mafia uses violence, even murder. And in recent years, um, six murders of foresters have been registered in Romanian uh, forests and really several hundred attacks on foresters, uh, NGOs, but also on journalists. So to, to sum it up, the Romanian wood mafia is really um, a challenging problem that is still, or at least was uh, underreported until, until now. Um, Benedict, and what is the timber used for? Well, you know, where is it going? What is it being made what, with it? I mean, it, it's it's always um, hard to find concrete proofs. Um, but what you can say in any case is that the Romanian economy um, has no great demand for wood. So the greatest demand for wood is generated by Western companies, especially by Austrian companies, um, that have their own sawmills based in Romania uh, to make pellets, to make wooden boards, and to make cheap 
uh, furnitures from these trees. And I'm afraid that a lot of illegally logged wood ends up in such products which are sold uh, all over Europe, but also worldwide. And yeah, I'm, I'm not alone with this opinion. And there are also proofs and we could also prove that um, at least some uh, illegal luck would um, went to one of these big companies. Thank you, Benedict. And um, Chris, Krishna, I have a question for you because I see this as a challenge for this dense, you know, these investigations with like so much information. And as a digital producer, uh, I would like to hear from you about making investigations that are, you know, presenting them in a way that is audience friendly. So how do you ensure that the public can make sense of like this, all this data and the jargon, the technical language in projects like Deforestation Inc and others? Yeah, so this is, yeah, it's like from crime to nerdery, but yeah. So, um, so we try to make uh, data and technical language as simple to understand as possible. So this is a special challenge specifically in Indonesia because um, environmental reporting here involves a lot of complicated language and jargon because there's a lot of stakeholders, there's a lot of programs from the government, there's a lot of um, acronyms. So there's like FVLK, there's SIPPUHH. There's PHPL. So I had to parse through all that. I made, um, I don't have it with me right now, but during the course of this investigation, I actually have like a little glossary that I keep around when I was like looking, looking at um, reports, past reports from Temple, because I just could not. Yeah, that's it. That's, uh, that's like key to these kinds of investigations because it's, it's just really hard to parse through. So we try to hone in on the effects rather than get mired in by the red tape, which is basically all that kind of like government um, jargon and nonsense. So an example is when we, in, my, in Tempo Story, we discussed like critical points. So we simplified that process. So we had a graphic that has like three different um, kind of process in the wood industry, right? So that was actually five, right? Uh, so it's five phases before export. It had a little kind of um, critical points that kind of like just jumbled with each other. It's like um, falsified documents here, but also here. And the, the difference is literally where the wood is being kept, right? So um, wood is being kept in a warehouse is different from uh, falsified records that are for wood that is being kept in a warehouse is I don't know why it is being kept separately from falsified uh, documents about wood being kept in log ponds. So we just had to like, um, what do you call it? whittle down, whittle that down to something that the audience can just really connect to instantly. Right? I think the tempo story was returned to me like three times from the editor because I just kept on um, going like, so uh, as we all know, SVLK is no, but the people don't know that, right? So I had to just explain every single um, thing in the simplest way possible. So for data visualizations, we try to think laterally in terms of how visualizations can add value to the story. So for example, we decided to do a dot visualization um, so that people can see how many companies are implicated 
with how many cases, right? Um, so if you see in the in Tempo's page, it's only just like it's a stack of that. It's like 120 cases um, that we have got parsed through. So originally it was like 160 something. We removed some cases because of lack of detail or um, there are letters that are not going to the certification bodies. So we just took those, took those out. So in kind of like um, first view, 120 cases might not seem a lot, but I think 22 out of 33 certification bodies in Indonesia are implicated in that visualization. So that's like more than half of um, certification bodies that have a track record of missing um, violations of the guidelines that they're supposed to check, right? And um, even though these um, violations can be something as simple as, you know, they did not, um, what do you call it? Uh, accurately publicize the results of their audits. But these these things still kind of take away trust from the entire um, system, right? So that clearly adds value to the story. So that's kind of like the thought process that we had in our approach to this thing. Thank you. Now I have a question for all three of you. Um, so some of the companies featured in the investigation produce their raw material to very basic products that we use every day, like toilet paper, coffee filters, furniture, the benches we sit at, you know, in the park and doors and windows. With this in mind, I want to ask you as a journalist, but also as a consumer, uh, what's your biggest takeaway from, from your findings from this investigation? Sheila, you want to start? Sure. Um, well, Two things. One is that uh, we are not aware enough of what's around us, so what we use and how we use it. Um, so this was um, also an eye-opening for me, just as a consumer, as you said, not only as a journalist. Um, I saw Chiro's question asking about, you know, like maybe we should you know, maybe we should raise more awareness about these issues because people sitting at a table somewhere in a small village maybe don't know that they that they are actually sitting at a table that is being coming from illegally logged uh, wood or something. Um, obviously, there have been a lot of reports by great environmental groups on this topic before, but I think the strength of the investigation was the globality, the, the global team, and looking at this topic at the same time together and really finding problems across the board, across the, the, the world and the, the same issues over and over again. Um, so this was quite surprising for me. How about you, Benedict? What's your takeaway? I mean, for me personally, I think the greatest lesson I've learned is probably that the forest is our life insurance in the climate crisis, right? And I, I think we should actually take very good care of this insurance and continue to invest in it. But we're not doing that. Instead, we're like tearing small pieces out of our insurance and burn it as pellets, biomass, or consume it. Uh, as cheap wood or whatever yeah and frankly that is not really clever and moreover um, yeah I learned that um, the European Union should definitely 
work on the UTR and on its sanctions because otherwise um, the loopholes are just too big and um, these uh, regulations um, yeah, are still an incentive to trade illegally uh, cut of wood. Thank you. Thank you. And how about you, Krishna? Yeah, um, as a consumer, I just don't believe in green labels anymore like just juices are just out I just don't like it's sustainable and I'm just like yeah sure but um I think the as a journalist though um the I think I'm more surprised about how the game is so similar across the world because um Tempo has had um we've launched numerous investigations about corporations kind of like um doing this illegal um, certification stuff you know um that bkm report was um last month but we had reports about that coming in 2018 2019 it's like a yearly thing for us but we always stopped short of like so these are illegal wood going to europe but we don't know uh who is ex importing it right um, but we we always assume that it's like um, we we've always stopped short of contact. Uh, we've contacted these um, uh, companies, and they would be like, "Yes, we have our own investigations, and we'll get back to you." But um, turns out it's the same everywhere in the globe. Like things that are happening in Indonesia, falsification of documents, are crimes that are also happening in Germany, in um, America, in Brazil. Right. So I was just very surprised about how global this is and kind of how um, it really is kind of the similar, uh, the same playbook, um, you know, used over and over again, in different companies everywhere in the world. Thank you. So what has been the response to the stories from governments, authorities, certification bodies, you know, the companies that purchased this raw wood? Has there been any reaction, Sheila? Um, yeah, the certific certification schemes that we um, talked about in the investigation, they all said that uh, they, you know, they stated again that uh, they are basically better than nothing, better than having nothing. It's better. <laughs> uh, it's good to have voluntary um, system. Um, and um, we've got some responses in the Netherlands by a politician that um, urged a more, um, you know, deeper investigation into the use of um, teak um, from Myanmar. Um, you know, and a lot of people, politicians, I guess, uh, asking how is this is possible? A bit like the the question that Benedict asked before. We have, you know, we in Europe we boast of being some of the strictest regulators. We have rules and sanctions, but then <laughs> everything happens. So, uh, why? Um, it's uh, and one thing that I'm curious, I'll be curious about will be to see how the European Commission in the at the end of this month will frame their green claims initiative. They are working now on a directive to stop greenwashing. So I'm really interested in looking at how they will um, maybe make uh, use of our findings um, to develop a more um, sophisticated uh, law. Okay, how about in Germany or Indonesia, any reactions? Um, 
I mean, what one reaction, one nice reaction is that um, one day after our investigation was published, um, a high-ranking Romanian police officer was arrested who allegedly took 300,000 euro bribes from an alleged criminal uh, forest uh, company. So that is nice, but uh, it's not much. I know that um, in Germany there are investigations going on against three um, of the, uh, three enterprises we covered who um, imported uh, timber, and I know that the uh, uh, teak from Myanmar, and I know that the topic um, Chiller just mentioned on the EU level. The discussion of how is this is it possible that still Myanmar teak is going into uh, is coming to into the European Union is also a topic in the environmental ministry in Germany. So um, I I mean there is a lot of discussion going on, but I I think it's too early to to see what what is coming out. But I mean we are definitely very much interested and we're on it. Yeah. In Indonesia, the National Accreditation Committee, which is kind of like the government um, organization that handles um, certifi certifying the certifiers, uh, wanted to talk to us, I think, this Friday. So there might be a follow-up comment that will link to the story. So check back soon. Uh, thank you, Sheila, Krishna, and Benedict for, for sharing all this information with us. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you so much. We hope you all enjoyed this episode. This live panel and access to events like this are one of the many benefits offered to ICIJ's insiders, people who make regular donations to ICIJ. Insiders get regular sneak peeks behind the scenes of ICIJ investigations and get the opportunity to attend live events and chat with reporters. To find out more, go to icij.org donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Brenda Medina. We'll be back to regular programming next month.